Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Welcome to Radiotherapy. It is um, daylight savings. Yes, we need that daylight savings reminder. My microwave was lying to me this morning and I had a bit of a rush to get here. And I got an extra hour, which was excellent because um, this is my first time panelling. You're here with Cyber Sue and Miss Perineum. Yes, we're going to be very kind to Sue today. (laughs) We love it. She's doing an amazing job and we've got a really interesting show today. We've got two fabulous um, clinicians who are coming on to talk to us about pain, chronic pain mostly. And we're going to start with some news in a minute. But Suze's got a relationship with our first guest, Angelo, um, who's an award-winning physio. So I'm very blessed because I consider both of these people my colleagues, having been both physios, which is really, really fabulous. Um, So we're very blessed to talk about this space in the allied health perspective because we're talking about pain that has really changed people's lives and impacts them on a day-to-day basis, which is really interesting, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And, I mean, I think like many illnesses, um, chronic pain can really affect the whole body, skin, immune system, heart, lungs, the gut, everything. And... um, Um, And it's very complex. Yeah, incredibly complex. And I think we're only just starting to really scratch the surface as to how to treat it and understand it from a clinical point of view. Our... um we're starting with that understanding that pain isn't the same for everybody and that it's a lived experience and that we're starting to understand the mechanisms that drive pain um, and that old adage that so many doctors have said for people who live in chronic pain that, you know, it's in their head or it's it's not as bad as you think or, you know, take some medication and it will get better is really outdated in the way that we understand and we treat pain. And I think the more that we have an open dialogue with different health providers about how we manage pain, the better we get at actually managing it and understanding it, which is really interesting. Absolutely. And I think like you were saying, we traditionally think about pain being something, a physical issue with the body. But what we realise is that neuroplastic changes are occurring within the brain and within the nervous system, um, making the body more sensitive to pain. Yeah. So our second guest today, um, Dr. Ebony Rio, actually does a lot of work in understanding the neurophysiology of pain. Um, So we're going to talk to her a little bit about that as well, which is really exciting. That is great. And our first guest, Angelo Ratnachandra. Now he um, is an award-winning physio practitioner and he's a founder of a, a, of a um, you could call it a business, but it's actually a whole philosophy called Beyond Pain. And um, chron- he works in chronic chronic fatigue, well-being. And he, when I first met him, he actually turned my thinking upside down about the role of the physio beyond moving parts. Mm. Um, so, so we're going to have a fascinating chat with them both. Absolutely. I think lots of people think that physios work in that space of, you know, you've got an injury and we have to fix it. But the reality is that it, I, I treat 
on a basis of you're looking at a whole person and that your job as the physio is to improve their quality of life so that they can do what they want. Yeah. So we're looking at their physical capacity rather than just, oh, your knee doesn't bend or the this or that. It, we look at a whole person and I think that the way that we are, are transitioning in medicine to that understanding that it's a whole body approach, it's a whole person approach is better for our patients in the long run because we know that there is connectedness between systems, um, particularly when it's a complex issue like pain. Yeah. Okay. So let's get to some news before we get going, shall we? Yeah, absolutely. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Miss Perineum. Yeah, so I am going to talk about, I think it's kind of on the vein of what we're talking about today, but there's been some really fabulous um, events that have happened this week, which is that the government has come through on their promise of delivering Australia's first endometriosis and pelvic pain clinics across the states and territories. And they're opening up 20 new clinics that are designed specifically to treat for endometriosis and the associated pelvic pain, um, which is such a specialised area. And I work in and around this space myself. And I am so excited that we are getting clinics that are going to help people with chronic pelvic pain because it's really, really common. But endometriosis affects one in nine women. There's Mm. some evidence now to suggest that endometriosis has been found in every organ in the body, including the brain. And there's some clinical studies that are starting to look at over in... um, over in the US and in Scandinavia because they've actually found endometriosis in transgender women. Oh, wow. So we're talking about a condition that our understanding, our fundamental understanding of has completely changed in the last 20 years. We thought that it was the endometrium climbing outside the uterus and affecting other organs. We now know that is not the case. It is endometrium-like tissue that affects all organs in the body can really cause chronic pain, infertility, and really impact people's like quality of life. So the fact that they're opening these 20 clinics in, in Victoria, we've got four new opening um, and they are actually out in the regions, which is really great because access to this kind of specialised healthcare is limited in terms of um, the, you know, in terms of the other access in 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 the cities we've got much more access to these kinds of specialized clinics so it's fabulous to see that we're getting you know impact stretching out into the regions and considering the fact that we know that endometriosis costs they think at an estimate the economy uh, the economy like if you think about pain and the cost to the economy it costs 6 billion dollars a year mm-hmm. and a lot of that is like time off work as well isn't it time off Massive. work management loss of productivity mm-hmm. and if you think about the fact that this is only clinically affecting maybe half of the workforce mm-hmm. as a majority you think about that if we expand that out to a pain setting how much would pain chronic pain be actually affecting our workforce and these are clinicians who are going to be actually implicated like implementing change for people on a personal level, but will have a much wide-reaching 
effect. I think that's wonderful and it's the kind of thing we don't tend to talk about. It's a little bit uncomfortable and mm. it seems a bit personal and um, people can be really suffering in silence but getting these conversations out as well is um, means a lot for absolutely. a lot of people. Absolutely. Yeah. So thanks Miss Paranem. No worries. Now, I am on the tail end of my second COVID mm. infection, um, which was a little bit tedious. My first one was about 14 months ago. Um, and there's been lots of debate about whether the second is worse, et cetera, et cetera. And when I looked at the research, it seems to be pretty inconclusive. Mm. Um, for me, same, same. You know, a few couple of days of feeling gross and then yeah. carry on. Um, but a, a, a number of people asked me, was I up to date with my vaccinations and so on? And um, so I was kind of wondering, well, actually, how many vaccinations should we have had now? Like, what's the guidelines? Yep. Um, and on the government website, um, health.gov.au, um, it says that it, of course, varies by your age and by your, um, by your health, health needs. So it's not entirely completely clear cut. Mm. But in essence, what the general guidance is, is that if you are over the age of 65 or if you've got some form of uh, health compromise, then every six months have either a vaccination or if you've had COVID, just, you know, COVID itself. Yeah. To boost those immune responses. Exactly right. And so that's so for, for pe- they, they recommend that for people over the age of 65 and, the, and health compromise, for, for the rest of us adults up until the age of 64, is that they say you could consider this. Mm. So, you know, case by case. And the, um, it, it does still matter. Um, you know, now this has become, we've become COVID normal, but there's still five people in Victoria a day dying from COVID. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and there's still on average ten people in ICU. So it's mm. and of course it's absolutely around us. We don't. Yes, there's numbers published every day, but how many people aren't reporting it um, or actually not even knowing that they've got COVID? So it's very much in society. And the, the the goal of vaccination still isn't to stop us from getting COVID, but to minimise that um, severe illness, which again is yeah. to help reduce that impact on the health service. Uh, you know, on healthcare as we head into winter. Mm. And Particularly with winter, the other thing to consider is that we have a really strong program of vaccinating for the flu, which is which is separate to COVID. Mm-hmm. COVID is not, even though it has flu-like symptoms for some people, it is not a flu. The flu vaccine is not a COVID vaccine booster Correct. and you would need to get both. And to think about the fact that really you're vaccinating A, to reduce the risk of severe disease to yourself, but also you're protecting the more vulnerable individuals in the society because they're the ones that we see dying of flu, dying of COVID. And we're not just talking about an older population. We're talking about people who have an immune compromise. We're talking about young children who are getting really sick all the time with lots of viruses and things like that. And it's really important that if you have any symptoms, not to just ignore them and assume that there is so much COVID around that it doesn't matter. Have your rat tests, test yourself, wear a mask if you are even remotely thinking that you might have symptoms, even if your rat test is then negative. If you've got symptoms, wear a mask because actually that's the best prevention of other people getting sick. Correct. So make sure that you're keeping up your hand hygiene as we come into winter 
make sure that you're keeping up your mask etiquette. It all matters. It, it makes does. a big difference. It does. And especially because we don't necessarily know what's lurking around. I think the other thing to note is that if you have had COVID in the last six months and you don't know, and then you go and get vaccinated, it doesn't matter. Correct. Yeah, so it absolutely doesn't matter. And you can get COVID and flu vaccine at the same time. Yes, you can. So just get them done all at once. Yeah, the new flu vaccines for those who are um, curious normally come out in the first couple of weeks of May. So for we get our flu vaccination information coming out of the UK. So we have a new round of flu vax that get updated every year where the predominant strains are, are um, told to us what they've been over in the UK and we have the vaccines come out in May. So book that's in if that's something that you are keen to get and if you've got people in your life who are immunocompromised make sure you've got that ready to rock and roll absolutely rock and roll now it is 10 13 a.m you're on sunday morning on radiotherapy you are with miss perineum and cyber sue we're um, going to go to a couple of announcements and then back to our first guest Ange ratnachandra from beyond pain this is a podcast from triple r an independent media organization in melbourne australia Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. We are with Ange Ratnachandra. Ange, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Great to hear you live on radio this morning and great to see you. We're not on the motorbike this morning, so Ange, we are um, fellow Sykes on bikers. And um, great to have you with us. Now, um, just to do a little bit of an um, introduction to you, Ange. Ange is, as I mentioned before, he's an award-winning physiotherapist, and Ange, you've always had a real passion for managing chronic pain and ways to treat it, um, and that was in your early career before it became very, very real for you, which we will talk about in a minute. Um, and um, as I mentioned, we first met through motorbikes. Um, Ange's got an incredible um, story to tell us, and it takes his understanding of um, chronic pain to a whole new level that most of us can never really understand. Mm. And Ange is going to talk to us today about that experience, what it meant for you personally, Ange, and what it's taught you in your professional endeavours with the people that come into your clinic. Yeah, sure, no worries. Yeah. So welcome. Um, So Ange, let's just launch straight into it and um, tell us, 23rd of June 2006, what happened? Yeah, it's a very special day. Um, it was a Friday night, actually. It was um, during the uh, Germany's World Soccer uh, Cup. Um, so it was. Um, I was sitting at home on a Friday night, um, eating ice cream and watching the soccer. And all of a sudden, um, someone broke the window. Uh, I was in London at the time. Uh, I was in a house shares. I was working and travelling at that point in time. I was in East London. Someone broke the window, pulled the blind out and lit a Molotov cocktail and threw it straight at my head. I sort of put my hands up to um, protect my face so the, the Molotov cocktail basically deflected off my arm and hit the back wall and, and it smashed and I got showered in petrol and they set me alight in a case of mistaken identity. They were supposed to get the house that was two doors down um, but instead they got our house um, and so I sustained the second and third degree burns to both my hands, my arms, uh, my left side of my face, my ear was burnt down to the cartilage and subsequently ended up in um, hospital for about oh, in an intensive um, burns clinic for about a week and a half, and then outpatients for about six months with um, a couple of skin grafts and um, inj- plenty of injections and pain medications. Oh my yeah. goodness, that 
the amount of anxiety that gives me understanding that we use our hands so much as physios and the fact that that would have been so scary on top of that experience of the prospect of losing your capacity as a clinician oh just sends shivers up my spine doesn't it and Mm. I mean I've heard the story before and I've read your book and even just hearing it now it's like oh wow and I don't know how you live with that well I I think um yeah it's just um at the time it really is like the, the movies, you know, everything just goes in slow motion. <laughs> it was happening. I still remember it. I could almost picture the the bottle coming at my head and it was like, uh-oh, uh-oh, and then all of a sudden, boom, and then real time occurs again and um, you don't really have time to think. I was just mm-hmm. very fortunate to have the uh, frame of mind to, you know, to put the fire out and get under some water um, as we were always taught. Yeah, exactly. I recall you ran upstairs and you jumped under the freezing cold London shower, correct? Yeah, 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 in a bathtub, yep, yep. Far out. When did the sort of people talk about with these kind of traumatic experiences that everything goes in slow motion, when did you sort of go into that survival mode of just dealing with what's happening in the instance? When did you sort of come out of that and go into what does this mean, what do I have to do, where is the consequence? Yeah, um, I think at first the first instance was when I was in the bathtub actually because mm. I felt I was away from the fire. But yeah. then the problem was that I saw the smoke coming up and I thought the whole house was on fire. And, and I lived with three other girls and my flatmates and they were all home. Fortunately, they weren't in the room, in the living room at the time. Mm. But um, so I was like, I hope they got out. And at that point, I think for me, it was the very real chance that this could be it for me. Um, and so um, I was in the bathtub thinking, oh, what do I do now? Uh, because that adrenaline rush is almost over and then you need a second burst of adrenaline rush to get going. Mm, yeah. Mm. And then and then a few years later, 2013, you first published your book, um, which is a um, two-part book. Um, the, the first part talks about your um, this experience and the, the, the I guess the, what happened afterwards and as you recovered from this. Um, and it's a very personal story. And then you um, talk about what this actually means for pain management and for your professional work and for other people. So what actually made you write this book? Uh, well, actually, it's one of my friends. She had she had just survived from um, uh, cancer, and she was really struggling with the post-cancer pain. Um, and so, when I was talking to her about all the strategies that I, I was taught when I was working in London in the pain clinic um, and strategies I've used for myself, she said, "Oh, well, there's got to be a lot of other people who just don't understand all of these that you made sense of. Um, so you should write a book." So that really inspired me. And and I guess for me, it was about at that time, you know. Um, we didn't really have blog posts and things like that. So the book was the only way of getting the message out to a lot of people. So that sort of inspired me to write it. It's really interesting you talk about that because our understanding of pain has really progressed in the last particularly 10 years. Are there anything that you went through that you used at that time that may not have been clinically, um, the evidence for it wasn't there when you were going through that experience, but now with with hindsight, the, the research is catching up to your lived experience? Yeah, look, I, I think that biopsychosocial approach and I think the philosophy I sort of try and take into this is that, you know, um, there's pain, which is the diagnosis or the condition, and then there's the struggle, which is what we all want to try and achieve and, and work mm-hmm. towards and overcome. And often it's the struggle that causes us the anxiety and the worry and, and, and the stress. So if we can try and work towards a struggle despite the pain, um, I think that 
that's sort of the approach that I try and take and what I learned as well for me because when you focus on the pain and try and fix the pain and it doesn't work, you lose hope and it's sort of soul-destroying. Whereas if you say, all right, the pain's there, but maybe I can manage it and work with it um, and still achieve what I want to achieve and, and have a fulfilling life, well, mm. then there's hope and there's an opportunity to, to work towards something that's actually that you have a sense of control over. The biopsychosocial model is something for our listeners out there is is a model of understanding how we sort of treat in regards to a whole person approach. So bio being the biological side, the psych being the psycho, like psychological side and the social being the social impacts of how we live our life and the fact that they all three aspects actually cross over and interchange and, and influence each area um, and that you can't just separate the biology from what it actually does for people. Absolutely. And this is this, this is where I've kind of come to have this great newfound appreciation of physios and that integration of the whole person and the whole experience um, and impact on the person. And you talk about that in your book as well, Ange, that pain versus struggle concept. Yep. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you think about it, um, that there's – there's different types of pain, isn't there? Um, you know, there's a pain that's actually painful as we know it. And then there's pain that's actually rewarding. You know, think about when you go to the gym and you have a really good session and um, you've got that pain the next day or the day after and you think, wow, that feels good. Mm. So why is it, why is pain can be pleasurable in one way and painful in the other? And that's where the struggle aspect comes into it. And I think the struggle is there because, and, and this is my philosophy anyway, that we have a lack of a sense of lack of control of it. Mm. So if you think about if we can empower someone, our patients, our clients, to feel more in control of their pain mm. and therefore address what they need to address and, and live a fulfilling life, then maybe it won't be so much of a struggle. So really the focus at Beyond Pain and, and sort of my philosophy is let's look at giving you back some sense of control. It's really interesting. I, I, I'm sure Ebbs, who's our second guest, um, will also have this experience with some of her patients. In the in the sporting community, the understanding of the sort of good pain or like the understanding that there's pain that's productive insofar as you're, you're working towards a goal is, is really hard to break, particularly in like your um, higher level athletes and things like that, because they actually push into pain and and often it's really unproductive for, for looking at them. They actually need to step back and, and slow down in terms of what they're doing. But this understanding that the pain is there, we have to push towards it, it's going to make me stronger, and it doesn't always work that way. Yeah. Ange, in your book, it really struck me that you, um, in fact, you're talking about this, about it's not what happens to you, but it's how you react that matters. And you talk very sensitively about um, how people often go doctor shopping, you know, looking for a cure to their pain and the, I guess the futility that they encounter in this. And why, why, is it that you're find, why is it that you find in your experience that this doesn't necessarily help people? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I think it's because, you know, a lot of doctors and a and, and lot of health professionals, for that matter, we, we still, we've been taught through the medical model of trying to search for what the cause is and then try and fix it. And sometimes with the type of patients I have with nonspecific pain and, and uh, central sensitization type pain with, where you might get scans and x-rays and, and there's nothing wrong, it comes back normal. That doesn't mean the pain's not there. It doesn't mean the pain's in your head. It just means that we don't have a test to show it. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, recognising 
hang on, why are you actually going to the different doctors or the different specialists? Is it to try and fix the pain? Because that, I think, is the the problem. What you've got to look at is, yes, of course, try and solve it, but what are you doing in the meantime to improve your quality of life? And I think that piece gets lost in this endeavour to find the cure. So I'm definitely not against people finding the cure, but I think it's important to look at how do you improve your quality of life while you're doing that. I think the other thing is that I, I, a lot of the patients that I see that are doctor shopping, it's not from a lack of um, from them of understanding, but it's it's that feeling of not being heard. It's a feeling of not being actually moving forward or understanding why someone is treating you in a particular way or what that is that messaging is and it's it's really disheartening for patients to feel like they're not being heard so understanding that if they have been doctor shopping it it can come from multiple different places of feeling a not heard or their condition not being explained and 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 progressing with it which is really disheartening for them yeah, hundred percent, and I think um, that's a really good point. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not a, it's not that they're trying to um, find a way out of things or by going to the right doctor. No, they're just or looking for shopping. answers. It's not about that. Correct, and yeah. it's an understanding. And and again, I think a lot of people do that because of that sense of lack of control over what's going on, mm. and they just need someone who can sit there and explain to them make it real for them and and support them through the journey of recovery. It's a very um, disembodying experience, pain, and anyone who's been in severe pain will know just how diminishing it makes you feel to be able to, to, to lose that control of your experience. And if you think about that happening on a day-to-day basis for someone and not understanding the triggers of what can flare that pain or bringing it down, it, it must feel so completely out of control and disembodying to to lose that kind of sense of what's driving you. So I can completely understand the un, the need and want to get some of that control back, even if it's a small percentage of it. Yeah, the word helpless is often commonly used. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and and the, and the word control is something that's just coming up so much in this conversation, which mm. is all part aspect of all aspects of life, isn't it? Mm. So, and um, our time is always too short. Where do people go if they want to find out more? Uh, look, you just go to our website, beyondpain.com.au. If you want to purchase a book through there as well, it's a self-help book. It's a self-guiding book. It's got my journey. It's got uh, information about the book uh, in terms of how pain works, you know, what do scans and x-rays really tell us in a really layman's sort of terms. So there's no real medical speak in there. Um, and there's a program in there if you don't have access to us. So, um, yeah. Uh, beyondpain.com.au probably is the best. Thank you very much for being on the show. Now, and as I said before, you're welcome to stay on the show. Um, join us in the conversation with Ebony coming up. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Dr. Ebony Rio, who is a senior um, researcher over at La Trobe University and has been in the physio space for a very long time. Ebs has worked at the Aussie Ballet. She's worked with 
many, many different professional athletes and her research predominantly was in tendons and understanding tendon pain, but I think has progressed now into understanding pain in general and, and understanding how we can modulate pain with exercise and through understanding the sort of pain mechanics in a way that's a bit more productive. So welcome Ebony onto the show. Can you hear us, Ebs? Thank you so much for having me. I can. That's fabulous. And I, I understand you're joining us from uh, junior footy out in the field. Um, I am the head trainer for the under-11s football team at the Heathmont Jets. I'm currently in the beautiful Chernside Park walking around, uh, enjoying listening to the show. That was quite an incredible um story actually incredible yeah so tell us a little bit about your understanding from a research perspective about your journey in understanding pain yeah that's a a a good place to start because then I think I can weave in how my own understanding of pain has changed so when I went through university it was really tissue driven so the knee joint you know is the reason you have pain and it was very mechanical and very linear And what we now know is that the body sends information to the brain. So we've got all these amazing nerves and these little receptors on our nerves and their job is to detect danger. So all they do is send this danger information up via the spinal cord to the brain and the brain gives it meaning. So that means that pain relies on context 100% of the time. And one of the analogies that I like to use with patients and athletes is that pain is actually like smelling fresh bread. So if you walk past a bakery, you get this incredible sensory information from your nose, you get visual information, but it's actually your memory and other centres in your brain that put all of that together and you experience fresh bread. And you know that pain is actually the same. We have information from our body, but it's actually the brain with the your social environment, as you said, your cultural um, background, all of those incredible inputs actually determine whether or not you experience pain at that time. Yeah. And I guess whether it's a good pain or a bad pain, like we were talking before about sometimes pain is, can be a positive thing if it's after the gym. So when we have that association with it being a bad pain, um, and, and like Ange experienced the unexpected firebomb mm. is that completely turns around what pain means to you. Yeah. And I think if you think about that in context that we, we talk about that good pain and that bad pain for people who are athletes or they're, they're working in that environment and they've gone through that process of, of maturing a body and, and training a body, there are ex- uncomfortable experiences that go with that. And often sort of, I guess, sort of, training the brain to think that that's a good pain can actually mean that your experience when there's um, what we'd call nociception, which is an experience of a, a noxious stimulus occurring, the brain can process that as good and so it doesn't limit itself sometimes or can limit itself too much because of the fact that it feels very different. What would your thoughts on that be, Ebs? Uh, that's a, a really brilliant question and it's so true and I've had athletes and I still work with athletes that are living with persisting pain and it's it's interesting because they 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 talk about that lack of control that Anne talked about but also that it really threatens their identity because part of your identity as an athlete 
is your ability to probably put up with a little bit more pain than your competitor in a lot of our sports I, and pushing yourself to that uncomfortable level. Yeah, mm, absolutely. And I'm I'm listening to this podcast at the moment called um, Head Noise, and it talks about exactly this point. It's actually in relation to um, concussion in contact sports mm. and how professional sports people push themselves way past what anybody else ever would because of the that competitive drive mm. um, and also that ma- ma- um, masculinity and you know competitiveness and I guess the same comes down to managing pain in a competitive sports environment as well or the way that people might respond to it. Yeah it becomes almost like a badge of honour that you can Mm. tolerate a certain amount of discomfort as an athlete Um, and I think we really need to shift that in our sporting people's um, mentality because it can be really detrimental. Absolutely and in this podcast it talks about actually focusing on the coaches. Mm, push because because sports people are going to they want to compete so they're not they need someone else to actually direct them in many ways yeah ebs you've got a lot of experience in terms of managing pain in a sporting population what would you say the sort of key drivers are for your athletes in terms of of pain and where that process goes well, actually, a lot of really similar things to um, us just as humans. So we know that stress has an incredible um, impact on our pain experience, both the context and whether or not we have pain, but also the severity and the, the sort of bothersomeness. So Ange talked a bit about being able to still get on with your life. And one of the things that we talk about is that you might have pain, but we want you to be less bothered by it. Mm. And so stress is a huge one. And stress for an athlete might come in the form of, Um, particular competition if you are going back to the ground where you did your ACL Mm. you can have Mm. an absolutely unconscious you know increase in your stress before you even get to the ground and it's the same with you know uh, people that are off work um, because they might have been injured at work you can imagine the inputs so the sensory inputs what you see what you hear what you smell of your workplace can absolutely you know set up your brain to be uh, sort of primed for pain. So mm. the the inputs are really similar actually in terms of, you know, stress and context and environment, but all of those inputs, because they do drive pain, the exciting part is is that they actually can be tools mm. and they can provide an opportunity to better understand some of those things and to alter some of those things. Yeah, it was really interesting. I was actually um, listening to Radio Marinara on my drive-in today and they were talking about the fact that sea anemones have been able to show that they've got learned um, neural understanding. So that understanding of Pavlov's trained response is is able to be demonstrated in a simple neural network that doesn't have a brain. So it was really interesting to me that that particular piece of research has come out because I, I wonder how much of our pain experience is triggered by the past lived experience and that trained response. When you've had an experience of like severe pain, how the brain responds the first time predicts that next response which then predicts that flow on effect and I think it's really interesting that we come at it from a point of view of trying to change that behavior of the nervous system um, and and how we actually go about influencing that you've done a lot of work Ebs in terms of understanding how to change that without medication but more looking at how you actually train a body and change it with physical activity can you talk a bit about how that came about in your research 
Yeah, and I might actually use um, tendon pain as an example. So tendons are wonderful. They're these spring-like structures that allow us to walk around. They're the cool bit. You know, everyone talks about muscle. Well, attached to your muscle is this amazing spring that actually then moves your joint. And some people have unbelievable tendon pain. You might have heard of the term Achilles tendinopathy. It's really common. So that means pain in the tendon that's at the back of the ankle. And you can imagine... As humans, you know, we might be elite athletes and they get tendon pain or we might just want to walk around and play with our kids. And so it has this incredible impact across a really broad spectrum of the community. And so what we can do is actually take what we know about the biology but really meet the person at their story. So that's a really lovely quote from um, David Butler. He's an incredible pain scientist and physio. And he talks about meeting them at their story. An example of that for the Achilles tendon would be, you know what, tendons love exercise. They actually really do. But I'm going to teach you the things at the moment that will make your tendon a bit grumpy. So if you've got pain down on the attachment, pain down on your heel, One of the things that your tendon doesn't like is it doesn't like being squashed against your heel bone. So that's why you won't feel great stretching it and you won't feel great walking around in flat feet, in in no shoes at the moment. So what we're going to do is we're going to get you in a shoe with a nice high heel because that actually reduces this tendon getting squashed. Because we know that you walking around is really great for your tendon. We also know that your tendon will warm up a bit. So what that means is at the start of activity, you're going to feel a little bit stiff and sore, but you're safe. You might be sore, but you're safe. Mm. And I talked before about the danger messages from the body. Pain is the brain weighing up the amount of danger messages and the credible evidence of safety. Mm. So one of the tools we have is to provide safety messages. So I can say to you with your Achilles tendon pain, you're really safe to move. I'm going to teach you about the things that your tendon won't want to do in the short term, But we'll get you back to all of that stuff because being able to walk around in bare feet is, you know, something you don't need to avoid forever. So it's not about making people fearful of things. It's about giving them really targeted advice that's relevant to them but is also accurate. So Mm. we know that you're really safe to move with tendon pain. So let's help people move in a way that's good for their good for their blood pressure and good for their diabetes and good for their life and good for their mental health so that they don't get in this cycle of disuse. So it's it's really, yeah, as I said, to borrow a quote from Dave Butler, it's meeting people at their story and giving them advice about pain and education that's really a, a credible message of safety. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think uh, my experience with patients who, who go through pain and have had, when we're talking about chronic pain, we're talking about pain that has been there for over a period of six months they drop so much of their life out because mm. of that that fear that they could make it worse, that the pain could, you know, get worse because they're living with something that is impacting them on a day-to-day basis and, and the prospect of that getting worse in any capacity is really daunting. So understanding that there's there's safety and that there's benefit in exercise, whatever that may be or whatever you can actually achieve and having someone guide you through that process. We know that exercise is going to boost endorphins in the brain that's going to help reduce our stress levels. It will improve our general health in terms of other aspects of the body in different organs. And so 
understanding that as a, as a being, as a physiological being, you're improving your health by just doing something and finding a way that's safe and tolerable will actually draw that level and experience of pain and reduce it on a day-to-day basis. But it can be incredibly scary for patients to, to think that that's going to, that's going to come through and it could be getting worse rather than getting better. And I think you, you... Yeah, I just had a quick uh, comment and a question, actually. Um, mm. Ebony, I'll be, I'll be interested to hear your thoughts and everyone else that's um, on this morning. Um, look, I think one of the things that we talk about, um, especially when we're looking at um, chronic pain, is that not fearing a flare-up. Mm. And because often that's what causes the stress, that people avoid flare-ups because they're, they're scared that it's going to put them back. But actually having the confidence to know, if I have one, I've got the tools to deal with it. Um, I guess from a uh, athlete's perspective ebony what what are your thoughts or how do you guys approach that because i assume given everything you said about you know it is their livelihood it is their identity in most athletes they want to get back to the sport and they've got this pain um how do you address that fear of the flare-up yeah i i love that and i think we would address it really similarly so you know don't be don't be fearful we we might have some bumps in the road but that's actually really safe and as you say we want to build a real toolkit to to help empower each person that have where they have specific things that help them in the moment and specific ways of dealing with the kind of more bigger input stuff around stress or poor sleep and all of the things that we know just impact pain so I think not being fearful of um, a flare-up is really important. The other thing, and this is slightly off topic, but it relates to fear, people are really fearful of their imaging. Mm. And imaging is a really interesting one because things can often look different and tendons are a really good example. Your tendons can look really different, but actually they're just evidence of, of exercise that you've done over the years. They're actually evidence of load. And we talk about an injury to the skin where you get a scar and it looks different but it functions really well Mm. and your tendons are actually the same so we know in the Achilles tendon so the one at the back of the ankle and we know in the tendon at the front of the knee that the human body is amazing we actually get this adaptive change so if you have changes in that tendon your tendon gets thicker fantastic so you have sufficient fabulous spring capacity and tendon to be able to do everything that you want to do so instead of going oh my gosh that's you know that's an increase in the size of the tendon we should be celebrating it we should be patting that person on the back saying well done body you've done exactly what you need to do and we should be reassuring people but not in a inauthentic don't worry about your imaging way actually using the science Mm -hmm. and saying we know that that is evidence of bioplasticity, meaning every single cell in your body is capable of change till the day you die. And that's a great quote from Professor Lorimer Mosley. And um, I, I think uh, finding ways to reduce fear, and you brought up a really nice one, Ange, and I'd add imaging to that. And I'd say care with language would be my third. So, you know, saying something like you have... Achilles tendonitis. Mm. First of all, it's actually really inaccurate because we know that the tendon's not inflamed. But the deeper problem is that every time we choose a word, our patients and our athletes are updating their understanding of what they think they need to do for that condition. So if I say to you tendonitis, 
but it's safe to exercise, your brain's going, hang on a minute, don't I need rest, ice, anti-inflammatory? So there's a disconnect between what you think you need and what I'm offering. So our words are really powerful and I think they then, you know, probably dictate what people go home and Google and if you're using words that are inaccurate, they're also going to be led to websites that are probably not that credible and it's going to increase the fear and yeah. the danger message. It's really interesting that understanding of language around pain because I think there's, there um, is some evidence starting to come out and there's some research that I think you've had a smashering of involvement with EBS looking at how that translates to a younger population and the language that we use around with our younger athletes, our younger um, individuals because lots of kids bump, scrape knees but they can also get really serious injuries which um, the way we manage that for a younger population can actually really impact how they experience pain and what that goes on to um, impact their sporting careers or, or their physical capacity further on in life. Where are you up to in terms of your research at the moment, Ebs? What are you working on? Oh, I've, I've got lots of bits and pieces. Um, we have some amazing research looking at joint health in dancers and runners to show how wonderful load is. And you can see changes in their joints, but actually they're really incredible um, athletes and they can do so much and it's really healthy with the the message then being to the community let's make sure we stay really active and and you know it's a really great strategy uh, I have some projects across different tendons I am looking at some projects as well in um, using virtual reality and pain. Mm. So just looking at lots of different ways that we might be able to change the inputs for people and manipulate how they view or or how much they think they're moving through space versus how much they actually are. So that's an opportunity to manipulate visual input for people with knee pain. So yeah, lots right. of different bits and pieces. That's really interesting. It is it's um and I just I it goes to show there's someone and there is something for everyone, isn't there? I mean, to meet someone who is so passionate about tendons, mm. <laughs> you know the um the unsung hero in so many ways. I know. I always explain people, tendons are the suspension of your body. It's going to be a really rough ride if you don't look after them. <laughs> you know? so oh, I love that. I'm going to get that on a T-shirt. That's brilliant. <laughs> I'll make it for you. I'll send it to you on a coffee mug. Uh, I do love that. And, of course, you know, Ange and I would relate to that. It's like a motorbike with no suspension. It's a rough road. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. I was hoping I could get a final statement from both of you in terms of what you would say to somebody who has been experiencing chronic pain and what your take-home message to them is in terms of seeking help and and their experience of chronic pain. How about we start with you, Ebs? Sure. So the first thing that I would say to someone um, is I believe you yeah. because pain is real 100% of the time and some people actually find um, imaging that's clear or an MRI that's reported as normal, really confronting and they feel not believed. Mm. So the first thing I say to people is, we've got you. I, mm. I believe you. That must the mean second so thing, much. Yeah. Oh, yeah, a lot of people just start crying because, mm. um, yeah, it can be pretty 
overwhelming because the you know a lot of people can think they're reassuring someone by saying oh yeah your MRI your back is clear you're fine but if you've got pain that's that's not reassuring that's actually really confronting you've just told me it's in my head so um you want people to know that you believe them you genuinely believe them and you want them to know that they're in the driver's seat of their life and that you're going to help put the supports around them that they get to pick and choose from. But one of the things I say to people, and and I said this before, but I'm going to repeat it because I'd like that to be my final statement. And it is from the amazing Professor Laura Mosley, who's just taught me so much about pain. Mm. I say to people, we are bioplastic. And that means every single cell in your body is capable of change till the day you die. So for me, that gives unwavering optimism that we can work towards people living a healthy life with symptoms that are manageable and, as Ange said, not getting in the way of their life. Obviously, Mm. being, you know, pain-free is a goal for people, obviously. Sometimes we talk about pain being low and stable and just having that understanding of what other outcomes are. So if if being pain-free is not an outcome that we can achieve in season for an athlete with patellar tendinopathy, are you happy doing everything that you want to be able to do as an athlete but you've got symptoms that are low and stable and actually just empowering people to make that decision and sometimes just an understanding of that goes a really, really long way yeah, to yeah. Um, reducing fear. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you, you've... We've, we're, and yeah, you're... look, yeah, just, um, just quickly to add to that, absolutely what Ebony said. But and I, and I think in addition to that, to consider, you know, if, you know, pain is like... A chronic pain is like having another chronic illness, like asthma or diabetes. Asthmatics and diabetics don't spend time looking for a cure. They look at their plan and, and live a life. And I think if I could say something to the chronic pain patient, absolutely what Ebony said, we believe you, it's there. Um, now think about what do you want to achieve despite your pain and find the therapist who's going to help you achieve your goals despite your pain and allow you to manage your pain better. That is great. Ebony and Ange, thanks so much for being on the show. We've had a great talk. It's been excellent. Um, we'll be back in a few moments to wrap the show. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Yeah, thank you for joining us today. I think um, if if this conversation about pain has brought up anything for you that is is triggering or something that you want to get further information about, you can go to that website um, that Ange mentioned before um, or you can get in contact with your mental health services. Places like Lifeline or Beyond Blue can also provide really good help in that regard. Um, but thank you for joining us on this Sunday morning. Pain is not something that everyone wants to talk about first <laughs> no. thing out, but it's a really important topic and something that I think affects a really large proportion of the population. So we hope it's been really educational for you um, because it's such a big impact in people's lives and it's we're only starting. I, I really truly believe that us clinicians are only just starting to really get a handle on how to help people and we're getting better at it all the time. So, so don't sit there and suffer. Get in contact with someone and find your... T- 
to find your team, find your toolbox so that you've got some, some ways to deal with it. It's really, there's help out there. Absolutely, and we've heard that firsthand this morning. So, um, yeah, thanks again, Ebony and Ange. Um, Thank you, listeners, for being with us. We have got – that was my first show on panel. Did we have any dead space? No, beautiful job, Suze. We're loving it. We survived. So we have got um, Dr. Shane and Einstein, a go-go, coming up. And um, so, you know, another wonderful hour ahead of us. And um, Tim Thorpe, thank you very much. Yes, a big thank you. (laughs) We we second the uh, resurrection of a statue to Tim. He's gold as far as we're concerned. Yes. So, and sorry that I gave a person who has got celiac uh, gluten-free food this morning as thanks. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.